Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what do you get when you cross a turtle with a giraffe? A turtleneck. What do you call a fish that sets a good example? A row model. Today's guest is Samantha Andrews, marine ecologist, naturalist, professional science communicator, and founder of Ocean Oculus, a one-woman endeavor supporting researchers, companies, and all ocean lovers discovered more about this beautiful blue dot we call home. In today's episode, Samantha shares how she shifted her career from finance to ocean science, why she decided to pursue her PhD, and why she's not giving it up, and what science communication looks like for her, and how she's helping others make the impact they were meant to. Please enjoy. Samantha, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am thrilled to have you on the show and chat with you today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So you introduced me to Jersey and the Channel Islands. I had never heard of it before I found you. So could you explain a little bit about where you're from and what it was like growing up on an island? Yeah, sure. So where to describe where it is is probably where I should start. Like if you go into uh, Google Maps or any of those things and you kind of zoom in between uh, the UK and France, but closer to France and you zoom in and you zoom in and you zoom in some more and then you'll see a speck. And if you zoom in a bit more, you'll see there's a couple of specks there. And one of those specks is, is Jersey. The official line or the line I used to use where we work for, I used to work for the Jersey government was a peculiar independency. So the Queen of England is our Duke of Normandy to France. Um, and we have a long history of uh, ties between France uh, and then the UK as well. So we speak English now. Uh, we have our own language, it's a, it's a dead language. But we have uh, very close cultural ties to France. And a lot of those cultural ties actually come from the ocean and from fishing and uh, that shared resource that we have there. And it's it's a, it's a very peculiar thing in a way to grow up as an island. You don't really think about it uh, until you go somewhere somewhere bigger, right? Because where I grew up, you know, I'd go to school and I would have a lunch break. And for our lunch, we would go and sit on the beach and play in the ocean. And then we'd go back and go to school. And then after school, we would go back to the beach and, you know, build some castles and run around and the tide would come back in it would get in the water and then my dad would finish work and he would bring the barbecue down and would stay on the beach basically until this tide had come so high in we were forced off the beach because there was nowhere else to sit and that was that was our summers um we were playing on the beach in the sand in the water we were rock pooling all the time you know watching people uh, doing all sorts of like crazy ocean sports getting excited if we saw a dolphin or you know the seabirds occasionally there might be a small shark in the water or something like that it was great it was wherever you were we were like 20 minutes from from the ocean it was completely all around us you know you could smell it everywhere it was just ingrained i guess in, in our life but in a way that we didn't realize like i didn't realize 
until I went to England, mostly when I went to do my master's. So I did my master's in York in the north of England. And the ocean was, I think it was an hour and a half drive away. And, you know, people say, oh, you're so close to the ocean up there. And it, I really felt very disconnected, I have to say. Like, it, it was a beautiful part of uh, the UK, beautiful countryside, like really loved it on there. But I really felt I missed being that close to the ocean. I actually found it quite hard. So I used to enjoy being able to go to the beach and just like, just watch, you know, just be able to be there next to, to the water. It's a peculiar thing, I think, uh, until you, you experience that and then you experience like what it means to be away, that you really don't know what it is to be without that connection or you had that connection you didn't know you ever had, I guess. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. I read that when you were 15, you took a career test or an aptitude test and it gave you conservation as your result and I that makes total sense kind of growing up on this idyllic island and having such a connection to nature and the ocean that that would kind of be a natural inclination uh, but you kind of ignored that <laughs> yeah I did <laughs> so what did you do when instead when you graduated school and kind of got out into the real world well so I finished school when I was 18, which I know is a bit different over in the States, finished a lot later. So 18 finished. Um, and then I decided to go to university. But I decided I was going to be uh, a counselling psychologist. This was going to be my future career because I couldn't be a conservationist because on this computer program, <laughs> it told you that there's no jobs and there's no money, which actually was an element of truth of that. But, you know, I, I kind of decided at some point when I did this program, I was 15, you know, oh, you know I can't, I can't have a career that I can't afford to eat. So I decided I like psychology and that was what I was going to do. And I went to university and I went for three whole months to university when I was 18. Um, so, I, you know, there was, there was nothing, it's one of the things I still can't place exactly what went wrong. The first two years of the program were pretty identical to the psychology course I did between the age of 16 and 18. So it was going to be like an easier ride for me than for other people who had done different programs. It was just a, a coincidence that the modules were very, very similar. But it just, it just didn't gel right. Just the, the, the place I was, I guess, and the course and the people. Uh, I was living in a, a big city. I, I thought you know, I was 18 and of course I would want to live in a big city. You know, it's all the exciting things happen, but you know, I, I didn't actually. So I ended up leaving after three months and there was, there was a bit of a financial reason for that as well. So Jersey doesn't have any universities. Um, wherever we go in the world, we're considered international. So our fees are always quite high, but our government Will help support us for our undergraduates uh, they do like a, a basically a means tested thing based on how much money your parents and then they give you money basically to help you pay for those fees and some of the, the living costs as well which is incredibly generous uh, but of course they have a, a cutoff right if you want to leave your program for whatever reason that they they kind of need that money back if it's possible and there was a bit of confusion about you know when that would need to be and for a while i thought my gosh, if I don't leave by this day, I would have to pay them like £13,000, you know, and they're 18 years old and just their school and £13,000, it was the end of the world. So I quit, 
but I never regretted it. Whatever happened there was definitely a good decision, but I needed to work. I needed to find a job. So I went back home to Jersey and I went to a recruitment agency and, you know, here I am, I'm looking for a job. Uh, what are you interested in? I don't know. <laughs> I just need, just need a job. Uh, right now, that's my priority. I uh, had fairly good grades at school and ended up working for a small finance company, which I didn't, I didn't find very interesting in itself, but the people were nice. Because it was small, you had to do a lot of different things. So if you work for large companies, you, you have a role that tends to be fairly fixed that you have certain jobs that you will do and you do those same jobs in and out. And, you know, depending on the, the, the nature of the job, there may be more or less variation on that. But with a small company, you tend to have to wear multiple hats, which meant that the job was, even though it wasn't exciting for me, you know, it made it a bit more interesting. And it gave me a lot of skills, actually. You know, when I, I think back, when I left that job, I walked out with a lot of skills that I wouldn't have had if I just gone and worked for you know, one of the major banks or uh, another very large company, administration type company. Yes, yeah, so I, I did that. And then I had a couple of other jobs like weekend jobs and evening jobs. And I was kind of just bimbling away with my life. And uh, at some point, I decided that I didn't want to stay in Jersey all my life. I really, I really, really, really wanted to go traveling. So I started saving up money and working more jobs. And eventually, I took off around the world. And I spent, uh, I think it was like four months in Sri Lanka, where I worked for a, an NGO, um, helping people just after the tsunami. It was actually an NGO that was working with uh, local organizations in Sri Lanka get help and resources and finances so they can do the things that needed to be done within a community-based situation. So that was very, very interesting work, very eye-opening as to how different types of organizations work within an emergency situation and how they interact with each other. Uh, so yeah, I was there for four months and then I had a stop, I think, in Singapore for, for a month and then I was in New Zealand for... You know, six, seven months, maybe a bit longer. And I loved it. I loved it. I just turned up, bought a van, drove around, saw stuff, had brilliant time. It was amazing. Gosh, it, it's just, it's just was an amazing place. Uh, and, and the people were so kind and so considerate and open and excited. And that's something that I really liked. And I really found motivating was that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just that they were happy but they they were happy and excited for you and it was like everyone I met they wanted you to experience good things and have good things because that's what you should have and if you want to try something you know what you should just go and try it because if it doesn't work well it's all right you just pick yourself up and you, you try again and mm. it, you know it was it was wonderful it was so the country itself, but also that kind of attitude. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that actually kind of spurred me into thinking as I got kind of towards the end of that trip and I burnt through all of the savings I ever had and all the mm -hmm. things I had. Uh, it's like, I have to go home soon. And I didn't, I didn't want to go back to the kind of work that I was doing before. So I didn't want to work, you know, for a a small company uh, like I was yeah, with lovely people, but a work that I did not really find fulfilling. 
and uh, the same I'd also worked for my local government as well again nice people but the work itself was not fulfilling and I really wanted to get back in touch with what it was that I cared about and that was this conservation thing and the ocean yeah it really I was trying to really kind of think about how I could pull those things together I thought well you know what you can do that. Why can't you do that? You know, so what? You're kind of yelling on a bit now. I think I was 27 at the time, right? So I'm uh, a bit older than most people are when they're starting to think about going to university. But I thought, well, why why not? You know, embrace this uh, wonderful atmosphere and the positive thought that I experienced when I was in New Zealand. Embrace that and try and do something. So I started speaking to some universities while I was in, in New Zealand, which you know, it was varying degrees difficult because we didn't have the same kind of technology as we do now with Skype and all that. It wasn't quite as easy, uh, but I managed to make it work. And they were very enthusiastic. But what they said was, you know, Sam, you're kind of getting older now and you might need to do some more qualifications before we let you in. Mm. So I went back home and then I got a job. It was a horrible job. I describe it as sending my soul to the devil. It was actually working for a very large banking corporation you know when you you walk in somewhere on your first day you just feel everything's just been sucked out of you oh no really the, the reason why I took that was because it was uh, fairly well paid and I knew that I would need to save a lot a lot a lot a lot of money so I went back home I took on this job I actually took on another three jobs at the same time and then I was doing a distance learning program which was the equivalent of a first year of actually a university degree. So I did that. This was through Open University? That's it, yeah. Wonderful institution. People, people in the UK will be very familiar with, with Open University. Yeah, I think they probably have a lot of lessons actually to teach to universities who have had to go through this process now with COVID about distance learning because they were, that they were designed from the bottom up to do that. Uh, and they did it in a... In a, in a very well, actually, very well. But uh, anyway, that's, a, that's another story. So yeah, I did this program. I worked my ass off and then got the money together, applied to university and they accepted me. And at 28, I, I went back to school, as I call it, moved in to um, undergraduate housing with uh, five lovely 18-year-old boys and I'm 28. So I felt, you know, <laughs> got quite old at that point <laughs> going in there. But yeah, and that was it. Then I was kind of, I was in, as it were. Right. So you had this degree from Open University. Why, why do you, I'm not familiar with Open University. Why did you feel like you had to then go to an actual university? You couldn't keep going with Open University? I could have done. Yes, I could have kept going. So the, the way their program or the program did work, I think it still does, but don't hold me on that is you could so you could go in and do like a full undergraduate program with them or okay. what I did was um, say it was like the first year of the undergraduate that you basically do in your own time and you come out at the end I can't remember what they call it some kind of like diploma or something that you get so why did I not go at the Open University I'm not 100% sure I think one of the main reasons was to do with the field work. So the, the course mm. I took was with the University of Exeter, 
in Cornwall, which is in the southwest of England. So again, very coastal area. But one of the things that really interested me about that program was they had a lot of field work. Um, now, it wasn't a marine program. It was a general conservation biology and ecology program, which is I deliberately chose that because I wanted to make sure that marine was the way I wanted to go. But I also wanted to have lots of different experiences and skills and things like that, uh, which this program did offer. Whereas I think the Open University course, I can't remember if they had field courses, but if I did that, then of course there's the cost and the expense of, you know, I have to then get a boat, go to the UK, travel by train, find somewhere to stay, do the courses, come back. You know, there was, there's a lot more logistics going on there with that than if you just go. And then the other side, of course, was that my local government would also help me with the cost of going to university which they did. I'm very grateful that even though I didn't complete my first program, that they, uh, they did step up and they agreed to help me through my, my next one. I love that. I love that they were, you know, and it's not like you, you quit and then a year later you came back. Like this is 10 years later and they still funded this education opportunity for you, which is really, really quite special. And I wanted to put a pin in the lesson that you learned from New Zealand in that you know, life happens, right? You go ahead and do the things that you want to do. And if it doesn't work out, keep going and figure out what does. And I like that. It seems to have stuck with you um, quite strongly as you kind of like move through your career. But I think it's just an important life lesson for everybody in that you're like, you're going to fail, period, end of story. And if you're not failing, you're probably not living the best life that you could. So like failing is just totally a part of the human experience and just getting comfortable with it and being able to like work through it is important. So I love that you have that, had that experience in New Zealand and that you brought that up today. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it too much before how important that was, but you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about it. I'm like, yeah, let's bring that up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you went to University of Exeter. Why did you decide to continue on in your education? Did you just love your program so much and you just wanted to learn more? What prompted the master's and the subsequent PhD? When I decided to go back to university, I decided that I wanted to be a scientist. And I wanted that to be in an academic setting because I'd worked for government before. Now I hadn't worked as a government scientist, but I, I knew what life in a government setting was uh, and it's not I'm saying it's a bad thing but it was it was different I guess I was I was interested in that freedom that you get as an academic which comes with its own set of challenges as well that people working as a government researcher don't necessarily face they have their own unique challenges of course um, but I was I was really interested in that ability to be able to frame your own questions and solve problems that matter to you obviously as long as you have funding to, to answer those questions as well and subsequently hire PhD student and master's students I, and I found that quite interesting I liked the idea of being able to help people to not only to do something to best themselves or find something that they enjoyed but to do something that would be useful for I guess for the greater good as it were so that that's why it appealed to me and of course like if you if you want to work as an academic you need to have a phd and if you want to have a phd you 
well, at the time you needed a master's. Uh, I know now there's much more flexibility where you can go from master's and roll into a PhD. But, you know, it's, it's less common now that you get people working in academia with uh, just a master's. Mm-hmm. I know it used to be the case many, many decades ago. There's, I think there's still a couple of people lurking in some universities who don't really actually have PhDs, but they're kind of doing exactly the same work. But that's, a, a, that's not the future, as it were. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, you know, I set out the career path. OK, so I'll do the undergraduate uh, and then I'll do a master's. And then I'll need to do a PhD and then I'll probably have to postdoc because, you know, reality is, is that you have to postdoc, especially in marine science. And then eventually I'll find myself uh, an academic position. So the, the master's was really a natural progression. And I decided to do my master's specializing actually now in marine work. So I did one, uh, say, in the north of England at York that specialized in marine environmental management. So it's a bit of a mix of ecology, but also management practices there as well. And they also had a thing where you, you went, basically you went away for three months and you worked on your own research project wherever you wanted, which again, really appealed to me because uh, it gave me more experience, uh, you know, more insight into the, the life of being a, a researcher and meeting different people. And of course, you know, I love to travel. I loved it. So it was, it seemed like a, an absolute win for me. So, you know, again, I was, I was very lucky there. You know, I applied to the course. I was accepted into the, the program and I went back to my government and I was like, I'm, I'm doing a master's now. You have a small number of graduate programs that you sponsor, small out of funding options. And they said, sure, you can apply. And I filled in the application. I gave a presentation and uh, I was say that really grateful that I won that that paid a big chunk of the tuition fees because again you know you're still overseas so the tuition fees are extremely high and then of course natural progression after the the masters was the the PhD which is kind of where things started to move out of this I guess from me wanting to work in in academia (laughs) so let's Let's kind of chat about that, because while you're getting your master's, you realize that there's this other part of you that you're starting to cultivate and grow, and that is Ocean Oculus. Could you tell a little bit about the genesis of Ocean Oculus, and can you explain the name? <laughs> uh, okay, so, well, the, the, I'll start the genesis. So, it's actually, it's an evidence of my ability to procrastinate when I should be doing something else. <laughs> so I was doing, you know, because it's not procrastination when it's science, right? You know, I was doing my master's, which, you know, I found very interesting. Um, and I, you know, for some reason, I decided that I should spend my time telling people about great science papers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went, I had this little blog and it was just me. It, I, honestly, it was just procrastination. There wasn't really a goal. Um, I pretended there was a girl, there wasn't. <laughs> and it was just me, you know, I read this cool paper and basically I was giving like a plain language summary. And, you know, isn't this kind of cool? Look at this cool thing we discovered or this cool new species or this terrible thing we happen to be doing. And then at some point it became apparent that a few people were reading it. And then someone contacted me and they were an editor for a magazine. And they'd seen a story I'd written uh, on 
it was some system science app and I can't remember what the app was, but it was just like a little thing. It was this new app had come out and they were to collect system science information, something to do with the ocean. And I wrote something about it and he said, this is really cool. Can I put it in the magazine? And I said, sure, of course you can. The whole website's Creative Commons, which means, you know, it's free for you to use just as long as you credit me. So he did. And then about a month or so later, he contacted me again. He was like, if I give you money, would you write something about some fishing issue? I can't remember the details. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. You can get paid for this kind of procrastination. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, yeah. And then spent an enormous amount of time writing something that I think now, quite frankly, is terrible. Um, but basically, it's part of the growing process. It is. I, I was, I was over worrying and stressing out about it, and the money was terrible. And you told me the money was terrible, but I was just kind of excited about that. You know, I was kind of excited to be able to research something and to pull that information together and tell a story about that. Yeah. And I, I liked that, and. I didn't hear from him for a while after that. You know, we kind of kept in touch, but the, you know, it wasn't like a magazine that had money to give people to write. It tended to be private kind of industry kind of sharing their news in this particular magazine rather than having like a team of independent journalists uh, writing for them. But I carried on with this blog and it kind of, the post grew and grew and grew and grew. And then suddenly I found myself, I had committed myself to writing posts like almost every day on different things whilst doing my master's uh, and it it was in a way it was stressful that I'd I basically had overcommitted myself and I had no one to commit to other than myself to do this <laughs> but you know people people were engaged in this and I was getting a lot of contacts and having a lot of really interesting discussions with you know not just the public but other scientists in marine sciences in engineering you know in fisheries and aquaculture in you know physics all things completely unrelated and then managers and fishers and you know ngos they were you know just contacting me for you know either just to say something nice or to ask a question or you know they just had something that they wanted just to discuss and it, it kind of grew from there. And then I, this editor came back and, you know, he was like, oh, you know, can you write something else and I'll pay you again? I said, sure. And that's really kind of what happened after that was it kind of went from how do I keep telling these stories, which I'm loving and doing that. And now at this point, I'm doing my PhD. Uh, how do I help support myself through my PhD? So I kind of started to spread out a bit and doing a, a bit of journalism work and providing science writing and then science communication training and writing and producing various tools to help with that and then helping people with their communication strategies and conservation strategies. Because these are all things that you kind of start to pick up or I was starting to pick up as I started to evolve this, you know, procrastinating on the internet into something bigger. So at one point, the website was called The Hobo Scientist. And so, you know, it was just a hobo scientist, wordpress.com or something like that. It's just a free thing. But I was like thinking, I kind of enjoyed doing this and I, I kind of want to do it. So I, I probably should explain here. It, it's, it's not just the, the, the draw of 
the, the storytelling and the communication and the outreach that's interesting me at this point. It's also, I became quite deflated with where we were going in, in the world. So, you know, there is there's some great science out there. There's some amazing stuff. We're making amazing discoveries. We're making new tools. We're finding new ways to do things. And we write about it and we put it in our little peer review publication and then it sits there. And we hope that maybe somebody else will cite that. Well, isn't that wonderful? But you know what? We're still trashing the world, still burning things. We're still uh, you know, overfishing large places. We still got people who are suffering insurmountable amounts of food security. Uh, we're not, we're rarely fixing our problems with the actual science. And it's, it's not that science is bad or not necessary. It absolutely is necessary. But there's, there's a mismatch between the work that we as scientists are doing and the actual on the ground change. And a lot of that comes down, I'm going to put down broadly into communication in a way, but it's, it's not just communication like I need to tell you about this thing so you will feel that you should do something about it. But it's also about giving people the tools that they need to overcome problems, to figure out how we can work together to solve these problems, to find the benefits of of solving these problems and really uh, at some point getting that political motivation but also uh, I'm not sure how to phrase it I'm going to call it a capitalist motivation because our society is very capitalist we're very dominated by large corporations that want to make lots of money uh, and we need to find ways to change that conversation around so you know great do the best science you can but it's not going to matter unless we do something with that or the multiple pieces of science try and work together to find a solution. So that's really at that point, I was thinking in the early stages of my PhD, I don't, I don't want to go into academia. I don't, this, I'm just going to get angry. I'm going to become one of those activist people who just weighs things around. It doesn't do very well because they just want to publish in nature and science and, you know, all those kind of greedy uh, journalist you know I, I, doesn't it doesn't interest me as much anymore again I was very lucky I went to do my PhD at a university in Canada which is where I'm at at the moment so it's the Memorial University in Newfoundland and it, a small university or a fairly small university um, compared to some of the bigger ones but it's it's very easy in that university in that kind of context to actually connect with people uh, and ask questions which is something I did. So, you know, I started asking, you know, different people and, you know, different, and I could meet people from different like uh, government departments and different scientists and NGOs and connect with them. And then it was one of the people working in, I think, at the graduate administration office. They said, oh, by the way, they're starting out this new thing to help support entrepreneurial growth here at university. You should go check it out. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. So I went over and they have this really nice kind of room that you can sign up to use and, you know, they set up the facilities, but they were also doing various workshops and things like that. So I started going to a few of them uh, and it was a lot of like learn about how to work a business and things like that. And then I kind of began to realize that if I, if I wanted this thing, this procrastination, this hobo scientist at that point, to be something useful, or if I want to find a way to be useful, I kind of need these skills. Mm -hmm. So I signed up for a, a formal 
training with them. And it was fabulous. I learned lots of exciting things. And then I also went to this meeting they had. They had these different industry people coming in to talk to people who were interested in starting up their own business. And so, you know, I kind of told them roughly, you know, well, I was thinking of doing, but I didn't know, you know, really what it, I wanted it to look like. And they, they took you through some like the basic stuff as well. And it was like, oh, you know, do you have an idea, you know, for like a, a company name? And I was like, ah, oh, no, I don't. And like, okay, you know, you think about this, you know, once you decide, you know, what your thing is going to be, basically they'll give you like an outline of all the steps. Uh, so, you know, you basically decide your your concept, like what you want to be, and you can test it to make sure it kind of works. And there's lots of steps for there. And then, you know, you bring in like a design element, you know, your branding and then your website design. Of course, then the website came up and I was like, I have a website. Here it is. The hobo scientist. <laughs> and then they just laughed. They were just like, that can't be your business name. And I was like, I know it's just a website. And they were like, I remember it though. It's kind of growing. I was like, yeah, you're right though. I, I cannot like have a, a company name called the Hobo Scientist. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I spent, I think, the next like two or three weeks thinking about it on and off. Uh, mostly, I, I actually had a an injury at that point. I had to go to the hospital regularly see my physiotherapist. And you know, normally when they were kind of like poking my muscle, giving me some ultrasound treatments, you're just lying there. It's kind of like what can I call myself? Uh, and then I don't know how Oceanopolis came. It just appeared. And I was like, oh, that worked. I had a few ideas before. And then, you know, because I'd been told this, that like, if you come up with a name, you want to check to see if the domain is available because that's quite important. And you want to make sure you haven't got any copyright infringements and all the rest. So I started going through all that with a few other ones. But Oceanopolis, there was nothing. So I decided to make the website. And then I think it was a, a few weeks later than I saw there was this Oculus Rift. So I, I get lots of emails now from people asking me about VR stuff, I think, because of this Oculus Rift. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, you know, when you, you kind of, you can put like your, they're like big goggles that you put on, you like, it's like a three-dimensional kind of like journey. And they have one apparently you can go and pretend you're in the ocean, which sounds fabulous. I haven't tried it. Yeah, no, um, I haven't heard of this. Yeah, but I think, I think the glasses the, or the goggles, I think it's called Oculus. And then they have, it's like Oculus Rift and then it's like Ocean Program or something like that. Okay. So, <laughs> so I started worrying for a while. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I don't know. I can't really think about changing it right now. Are you at five? No. I was there first. Who don't think they are? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it kind of, that's how the, the name randomly came. I, I can't tell you exactly why. But it was kind of like this evolution of needing to do something. And what I have now is, I think it's a growth of what that's going to look like. So, it, you know, when you look at it, it may look very organized on the outside. But behind that, there is just me trying to figure out what I can do well to help us take better care of the planet. In effect, that's, that's what it is. You have quite a bit on Ocean Oculus's website. I mean, we talked a little bit before we started recording about your ocean opportunities, which I want to dive a little bit more into, but you also offer, you know, your workshop trainings, just the the ocean stories and like the blog posts that you still have on there. Like I read a few through a few of them and they're really interesting. So there's, there is quite a bit on there for sure. I like that a lot. 
how does this all tie into your PhD? Because now you have a business and you're getting your PhD. That seems like a lot. Yeah. So the other side to the story is that I, I took a PhD on, which it wasn't my dream PhD, but an, an, an opportunity came up again with very nice, kind people. So I, I, I took it and, you know, they've allowed me to reframe the PhD into something that's more interesting for me. So what the PhD is looking at is how basically do we create area-based management tools like marine protected areas for species that move around about. So if you think, you know, if you have like a, a typical uh, protected area or a nature reserve or something like that, you know, it's, it's an area that you typically you draw a box or whatever kind of polygon shape it is. And then you say, okay, whatever happens inside this area, we're going to try and take care of nature a little bit better than outside. Of course, the reality is whether that happens is a different thing, but that's, that's the basic premise of them. But if you have species that are wide ranging and there are a lot of them in the ocean, that becomes quite tricky, right? How do you, how do you draw boxes? Or maybe you don't draw boxes at all. Maybe it's not necessary. So I'm... I'm a proponent of this idea called dynamic ocean management, which in terms of marine protected areas essentially means that you want to implement some kind of protection measure at the place and at the time where the species actually is. So you, you can kind of imagine like if you have a sea turtle and it's moving through the ocean, you want that protection zone to move with that sea turtle. Mm -hmm. And it's a really neat idea. And it's been kind of implemented to certain degrees in some places, but it's kind of still a very young science. There's a lot of good people who are looking at how we can do this. And, and part of the problems we have to overcome actually is to do with government, governance and policy, because we don't necessarily have mechanisms to put that kind of management in place straight off. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, you know, how do we implement these kind of ideas, these dynamic areas? Uh, and some of it's kind of more technical and ecological. So some of it is like, we, we just don't know where the species are. To, mm. to protect them, which of course is a huge problem in the ocean because mostly you can't see where things are. So there are different ways to approach that. And one of the ways to approach that is basically to model where you think the species are most likely to be. So you have this thing or this family of tools that you can broadly call species distribution model, um, which is what I've been using. So basically what you do is I take a bunch of data about the species I'm interested in, and I take a bunch of information about what the ocean conditions are like and then I can put that two things together and I put it into some kind of fancy pants algorithm and it does some crazy calculation and then it goes bing we think we know where your fish is likely to be at this hmm. particular point in time so I did that for a very small fish uh, that's found throughout Atlantic Canada called Capon it's kind of like an anchovy or a sardine one of those little tiny fishes and they're super important they're called forage fish like all these fish they're called forage fish and basically it means that everything wants to eat you and they're they're often considered to be keystone species or you know linchpins of the ecosystem that you know if you you take these species out then all the things that eat them they're going to suffer mm -hmm. so i was very interested to know about this little fish and where it's moving throughout the system, uh, throughout Atlantic Canada, and how 
it's kind of moving at different points in time. So I, I created these distribution models that predicted where this little fish is going to be, but also where it's going to be like in depth. So I have like depth distribution as well as thinking about latitude and longitude, which is kind of super cool. It was a bit tricky to do. So that was kind of like my first couple of chapters was looking at that and saying, well, you know, do they always go in the same place? Are the ocean conditions very different? Because of course, now we have climate change to deal with, which is going to change, you know, where species are going to be able to live quite dramatically in some cases. So I started looking at, you know, using these models to try and predict the stability of where I thought the fish was most likely to going to be at any given point in time. Where are they located predominantly? They live, so they're a pelagic fish. They are, well, so it's kind of interesting actually. So they're a super important fish, but they haven't been studied a huge amount within the Atlantic calendar. Now there's some great work on there that's been done, I'm not saying that at all. A lot of it's down to where they reproduce. And that's simply because, you know, they come in shore. So they actually reproduce on um, on the on the seafloor, on the bottom. So either on the beach or kind of in shallow water. And they found some other places further in deeper waters where they're spawning underwater as well, uh, which is one of the interesting questions. It was like, how, why do they have this quite different kind of spawning conditions you know sometimes it's on land and sometimes it's like under the water you know what's what's going on with that and where are they choosing so there's been a lot of good work on that but they're not a commercially important species and like many other countries if if a fish isn't commercially important they don't necessarily make the grade for doing fisheries research on and of course that's because you know government fisheries organizations, they have very limited resources, they have to pick what they're going to pick. And they have to be able to use the information, they have to be able to set things like quotas for stocks, or you know, if they need to implement some kind of other measure there to protect fish species. So of course, you know, Capelin didn't make the grade. But what it meant was we, we didn't really have a full picture of where they were going. But from what we can tell, from what my models show is that, you know, they they move from like offshore from the uh, continental shelf of Canada and they kind of go all the way through into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and a bit down towards like the US border and occasionally up into the Arctic as well, which is kind of interesting. That seems to be something to do with changing conditions with you know, when the water isn't quite so freezing cold that they can, they can make it up there. Really interesting. Something that's kind of hitting me right now is People ask me all the time, how do I become a marine biologist? And a lot of people have this vision of, I always refer back to like being on a boat, perfect conditions, studying dolphins. But I have some people that reach out and they're like, I get seasick, but I want to help the ocean. And, you know, just to be a citizen on the planet, there's so many things that you can do. But if you actually want to do a career in marine conservation and do marine science, there are ways to do it. And you're highlighting such a wonderful way to do that is all these these modeling methods and ways to protect in our oceans through computer programming that you really wouldn't have to spend any time on the water to do. Yeah, that's right. I haven't gone in the water at all. A lot of people, they said, you know, are you going to collect your own data? And I would love, well, maybe not in the winter in the Atlantic Canada because it's really stormy and you know, I would be seasick, but, you know, right. nice, calm, beautiful day and all the rest. Of course, I'd love to be there because I'm looking at changes over time you know collecting data from a a small area for a month 
or a few weeks, which is more likely, you know, it's not going to help. It's an interesting thing because, you know, we need that at sea data collection to provide us specific information. You can tell us quite detailed answers, but the other side is more what I'm doing, which is more, I'm going to say it's more broad brush where we don't necessarily have the intricacies. You know, I don't go in there with the, you know, I see the fish and then, you know, I measure how warm it was where the fish actually is and how salty it was, how much oxygen and anything else that I want to know. So it's, it's missing that level of detail, but what you get is a, a different generalized picture as to what's going on and what you want to be able to really understand the systems is to have both of those things come together. So it, it's never in either or, or which one's best. It's like a both. And there are different ways to do marine science that suit people's uh, skills and likes and abilities in a different way. Mm, I love that. That's such a good point. How does this all tie in with Ocean Oculus? I mean, like we said, you have, you have quite a bit going on. You've got your Ocean Oculus business that you do science communication and trainings and amazing things with. And then you have your PhD program that is also doing amazing work but it's not necessarily always interconnected, right? It's not at all connected. Yeah. So the PhD, I guess in a way, the, the ocean oculus, like from a personal perspective, is cathartic because the, P, the PhD, to be honest, it's been hard. I am really actually quite terrible at doing modeling. And <laughs> it's brute force and stubbornness alone that have enabled me to do what I do. But it's honestly, it's awful. If I could go back in time and talk to myself, I would be like, Sam, you do not want to do that. That's not for you. It's not going to work. You just can't. You can't. And I, I say that and I say it to a few people and they say, oh, it's just imposter syndrome. You know, of course you can do it. But there's a difference, I think, between imposter syndrome and just not being very good at something. And I always say to them that if I sing to you, you want to like cover your ears you're going to like recoil in horror what's going on and then if I tell you I want to be an opera singer you're going to be like no you can't be don't be daft Sam you can't be an opera singer stop being so silly and that would be okay but for some reason when it comes to this kind of work to say I'm really bad at this it's something that we don't like to discuss because everyone should be able to do it for just afforded the right opportunity. Now, could I have had different support to help me through? Of course, I could have done. Uh, you know, maybe there were different ways I could have gone about it, and maybe my supervisor could have gone about it that would have made this pass less painful. But I think at the end, I'm just not very good at that. And it's taken me a while to accept that. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm raising it now because I want, I'd like it to be normalized that you can be not very good at something. But when it comes to Ocean Oculus and the kind of work I'm doing there, I get people coming to me all the time wanting different services or needing help or needing support or direction or whatever it is. And I can do that and I help people and I know I help them because they come back and they tell me that's a really nice thing that you did oh my gosh, you've helped me find this. Or because you said that, I've moved on to X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. So rather than fighting, I guess, mm -hmm. to force myself into some kind of modeling work, 
the oceanopolis thing is probably something that's more suited to my skills and ability and it's something that came about so naturally for you i mean it's like literally what you procrastinated doing yeah it is so we talked a lot about in your phd how you kind of feel like you're like hitting a wall and like really stubbornly trying to push through it and it's something that you just really recognize it's not your forte have you thought about not continuing your PhD and taking all these lessons learned and just moving on? Every day, every day. <laughs> I mean, it's a really interesting question. I think there are a couple of reasons why I haven't. And some of them are more personal to me. And some of them I think more to do with, you know, how or how I perceive that other people perceive me, I guess. Mm-hmm. They're a bit intertwined. I think for me personally to even though it's not something I like, I've invested, I've invested so much of myself in this, you know, from that point where I decided to go back to school, to follow this path, to being where I am now, to give up. And it's interesting, the language, like we give up, right? You quit, you know, we drop out. Oh, but, but to do that now, I kind of feel that I would be incomplete in a way, like I, I wouldn't have achieved what I set out to do, even though what I set out to do was actually to go into an academic career. And that's not what I want to do. But this is this is the point for me. I need to do this for myself okay. to feel, I guess, maybe I don't know what I, I'm not sure what that is. I don't know if it's just a relief to be finished, which I'm, I'm definitely going to be relieved. The other side is I feel that people have invested a lot in me and I don't want to let them down. So that comes from my local government providing me funding for my undergraduate and then the, the grant they awarded me for, for my master's uh, to the, you know, because that's taxpayer money. It's the people of Jersey have, you know, given that money and I used that money and I want to be able to give them something back. You did get your undergrad and your master's. So that was money well spent. Sure, I did. But this is, this is where it becomes tricky, right? So I, I kind of feel like, I, I need to I need to give back for that. Now, if somebody else was to come to me and say that, I would be like, "What are you talking about? Like, that's not that's not how it works. You don't owe anybody anything." But I kind of feel I do. I feel like I guess I owe those people who give me the opportunity, uh, including my my supervisors, you know, who have invested time in me to help me to get through this process and produce science you know again you know the funding that I got for my PhD could have gone to somebody else and you know I I think they probably would have done a better job so I see that I need to do the best I can with what I have if that if that makes sense how much longer do you have so I ran out of funding last year so I have no time left actually I'm at that point where I, I don't have I don't have anything left I'm, I'm fortunate in that, so I'm married and my husband has a job that uh, isn't badly paid at all. No, by no means stretched imagination. He's not a millionaire or anything like that, you know, but we can kind of get by. But it's a lot of, it's a, it's a lot of pressure on, on that to have, you know, to constantly have one person supporting two, but also for, for myself to be, you know, not to be able to support yourself, I get the thing, not to be able to make that contribution. It's, it's, it's quite difficult, right. particularly, you know, in, you're used to being an independent person you know right there's two sides there I have to finish this year like if I go beyond this year that's it but really what I'm at now is I'm on I'm on the final chapter like I'm I'm putting it together now it's a conceptual piece actually I stepped away from the modeling 
which I was having so much trouble with. But what I've ended up now is at a point where I'm just so exhausted from it. I struggle to think. I struggle to put the pieces together. And I'm not putting something together that I'm very happy with, but I'm pulling something together that will be done, which is the most important thing. Even if you want to, if you're great and you're brilliant and you want to strive into do academia, being done actually is the most important part of a PhD, not that it's the most fabulous piece of work in the world, because of course, you know, so research is never quite, never quite finished, right? It's never reached right. the polished pinnacle diamond kind of thing. Right. Okay. So you're almost there. You're literally writing it. You there's okay. It's hard though. I see that. I hear the struggle. Yeah. It really it really is hard. I wouldn't do this PhD again. Would I have done a different one with hindsight? I don't know. Part of me thinks maybe I would have done. Even though I still think I would have arrived at this point and said, you know, I don't want to pursue an academic career. I still think I may have better enjoyed doing research in something else that wasn't quite so difficult for me. What else would you have wanted to research? I think I would have wanted to stick with the that idea of dynamic management some more. But I was just imagining, you know, if I, everything could have gone and be nice. I think I would have quite enjoyed having some actual, some field work involved in that. I think I would have enjoyed having some tracking studies in there where I could actually get some hands on. I think that's something that's quite missing actually from what I do is that, you know, you are quite removed from that ocean space. And yes, we've discussed somebody who grew up with the ocean all around and being quite connected with nature. You know, that's It kind of feels too distant. And I think that may have helped. But I think I would also quite like him to do something that better linked uh, ecology with policy. I think that would have been a, a better fit for me and probably probably my skills and what I could do well. Fair enough. And one other question that I wanted to ask you earlier, you mentioned that in your very first job at the small finance department you had, or small finance company, you learned a lot of skills that you kind of used later. What were some of these skills that you have found applicable later in your career? Something that was very kind of, I say job specific, but not. So, you know, it's it a finance company. So there's a lot of things about management and organization and reporting that you need to have when you're dealing uh, with finances of uh, different funds and trusts and all that. And I, I know that doesn't mean much to people, but kind of basically think about like being able to like know what your finances are doing and like how things run and how to make things better so I got, I got very skilled at rapidly doing work that required certain levels of reporting and dealing with numbers even though I wasn't actually doing any math myself there also became people skills at that you talked to lots of different people problem solving that came through that as well because you know often there were certain issues and you had to talk to lots of different people deadlines so you know it's a a deadline you missed for a PhD. Well, you know, we think it's the end of the world at the time, but most of the time it isn't the end of the world. But, you know, <laughs> if I if I miss a deadline to make a transaction for uh, for a client, uh, that could be, uh, depending on the client, you know, you could be talking to somebody with tens and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, of stuff that kind of falls through. And there could be various repercussions for that. The stakes kind of become different. So you kind of get used to dealing with that and the stress as well. You get quite used to I said I'm thinking I'm thinking I'm quite used to dealing with stress. I think I'm gonna change that and say you become better able to function under high levels of stress. There you go. Because I don't think I necessarily uh, <laughs> I don't necessarily deal with the stress very well during my PhD, but I can certainly 
function for the most part to high level of stress, right? Yeah, no, those are really good transferable skills. I think that it's interesting. I have quite a few listeners that are interested in doing a career shift. They did something that it's not resonating with them and they're interested in marine science, marine conservation. And what I try to bring to light is that they offer a lot of transferable skills. Um, and so like hearing your story and how you transferred some of these skills is interesting and yeah. helpful. Yeah, no, there's, there's so many, like, uh, from the smallest thing that you do, you, you know, you can almost apply it to anything. And that's something, I guess, something that's something I learned more in my work for the government, you know, speaking to a lot of politicians, call it the, the art of uh, BS, you know, it's something that you learn, but you kind of learn, you know, that, and it's not that you're lying, but, you know, you know that if you can see, you know, what, what this thing is that you're trying to get to, what the other people want, and you know what you have, there's probably actually elements that you have already, even if it's not directly related, but you, you need to find the link. And sometimes that's finding the link for you. And maybe sometimes that's finding the link for the employer, or the university, what it is. But that becomes something in itself is to be able to demonstrate how what you did makes you a good candidate to do this other thing that may not right. be related. And, exactly. you know, it's possible. Exactly. Love that. And I think I... I've come to realize more recently is that yes, I'm a scientist. I am not a modeler. I'm not a quantitative person. I think more what I am is a naturalist, somebody who enjoys the outdoor. I get a lot of excitement from nature and being able to share that nature with people or from seeing the science that's around us and being able to share that or put, put the elements together to find a solution. You know, that's more what drives me than the behind the scenes science, which, like I say, is very important, but at the end, doesn't really matter if we can't apply it. And if my skill is that ability to apply it, but somebody else's skill is to be able to come up with some really great ways to solve the problems using things like modeling or going into the field and observing fish and finding those patterns or whatever it is you're going to do, you know, being an engineer, creating some kind of like more sustainable solution to whatever problem it is you're, you're trying to try and solve. That's it. That's what you need to hone in on, right? Yes. I love that. I love that message so much. Something I personally resonate with as somebody that's done the science part and then now I'm doing with the podcast and the website communications and I'm like, ah, I resonate with the naturalist title too. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So one question that I've recently introduced to the podcast and I'm really enjoying the responses to is what would you do if you were given unlimited funding? Oh, okay. Is it tied to something? No, like to do what you want with, to make the ocean better, right? Or to further, further your goals. What would you do with unlimited funding? Somebody just walked up and gave, and gave you a blank check and was like, you could write any amount on it. Go. Oh my god! I, for some reason, the first thing that came ahead was, "Well, I'd probably go and get an ice cream." <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but I probably want to do more than just have an ice cream. Do you think when I've got the ice cream in my hand? That's a really interesting question. What would I do with that? Okay, so while while you're thinking about this, I have to tell you the thing that I found while I was while looking up Jersey because I was like, "What is this cool little island?" Um, there was a like coffee type beverage like iced blended frappuccino looking thing 
with a donut on top. Is that just like a random thing that the internet found or is that like a staple for Jersey? I think that's a random thing the internet found. Oh. We have something we have something called the Jersey Wonder, which is kind of like a deep fried donut, but you only make it when the moon is falling and the tides come up. Like, <laughs> it's one of those weird, Wait, weird what? Uh, yeah. You so it's like you know you you make it. Uh, I think it's you make it on a full moon when the tide's coming up. Otherwise, they'll go flat. Basically, you know what? It kind of looks like it. It doesn't look like a donut, like nice and round and organized. You know, like like donuts do. It's kind of like a deep fried splodge in a pot, which is delicious. And they're called Jersey Wonders. <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> Have you have you made the Jersey Wonders, or do you just go get them from a local shop? It's actually strange you don't buy them a lot in the shops. So it's something that's quite sad in a way about Jersey. It's become very Englishified, so we have a lot of English shops that came over, so like the big brands. But you can still find Jersey Wonders are often at you know um, fairs and festivals and and stuff like that that go on normally throughout the summer hopefully this year because their, their COVID's going quite well over there with their control so hopefully they'll be able to have some more uh, activities over there and the lovely lady whose name I've completely forgotten it's a small island right you start to know <laughs> everyone's names will be there with her truck with her jersey wonders but a friend of mine makes them she was taught them by her grand she's a, a proper jersey girl who are generations of people born in jersey so she has a jersey wonder recipe passed down throughout the ages as it were <laughs> That is amazing. I'm going to have to look up Jersey Wonder now. Yeah. Cool. And when you say over there, you're in France now. Jersey. Yeah. yeah. So even though I'm with the university in Canada, I'm in France, which was yeah, partly accidental. I was supposed to go back last year to Canada, but then COVID hit. And then I've been here. I've been here since. So I'm forced, forced to enjoy the, uh, the sun of the south of France. It's terrible. Eh? Oh, you poor thing. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That sounds amazing. All right. So back to the question. Yes. I feel like we've got enough time to get your subconscious working on a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm not going to uh, go and have a Jersey Wonder business. I think what I would do, you know, I would like to maybe take Ocean Oculus and I would like to build out the supporting arms of that. And those arms would be careers. I would have vaguely called careers, but I'm not just talking about careers. So everything that's kind of like on the ocean opportunity. So which is, of course, the jobs and then the PhD and master's and postdoc opportunities. But how do people navigate that space at different stages in their career? So like a lot of the questions I get from people who are looking for support, who are students or early career or sometimes mid-career and looking for a change is I don't know how to do X. And it's not that there's not a lot of useful information out there already on the web, but I think a lot it's not quite tailored enough towards different types of marine science. And I think I would like something that could help support those people, but also help support in finding like applying for jobs or applying for funding and where to look for this kind of thing. And then, you know, to help pull together, like, you know, help NGOs and things, you know, like if they want to be able to offer uh, opportunities or embrace citizen science or something like that, how can they do that? Um, And I would like to be able to have something like that, that didn't have a cost attached to that service, which of course is where the unlimited funding come in. And then the other side of that, I would like to have support for people 
who want to try and connect better with industry or communities or policymakers or whoever it may be to try and find ways to solve some of the problems that we're, we're facing at the moment. So whether it's a biodiversity loss or you know, dealing with uh, sustainable food sources or health or education, which of course these things are all quite intertwined, right? You know, how do we, how do, we do that? And again, really thinking about targeting that at people who don't necessarily have the financial ability to hire a specialist to go in and do that for them. So of course, you know, you could hire me to come and help you with your communication strategy. And if you were a very large uh, NGO and you wanted to do some very, very large kind of communication strategy, you might actually need a different type of setup than somebody like me. You might need a, a large company with multiple different people who could do different types of services that I can't offer. But then if you're at the other end of the scale, if you're like a community organization, who is doing good work, but you know, you don't have that capital to put in there and you don't know where to start, you need something to help you. And I, I would like to be able to offer that kind of support. You know, how do you, how do you connect those people with the right people to do what it is that they want to do and how can they get their messaging out there and make the change that they want to see? I love it. Yeah. Great, great use of funds. <laughs> <laughs> with the ice cream. With the ice cream. I like it. I like it a lot. One of my, my personal very favorite questions to ask is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could just be a day out in the field where everything went right or you you were out in nature and things went drastically wrong, but it makes a really great story now. And this could be, you know, total like work related, school related, or just a time that you're out in the ocean. Oh my gosh. Um so uh, maybe it's not, the most, it's not the most exciting story, but it just makes me laugh a bit. I was, it was when I was doing my undergraduate in, in Cornwall and we had this project where we had to, I think we had to like map or produce a, some kind of like guide or something, something to do with botany in like the local area. Uh, and a friend of mine, she was really interested in dune systems and the plants that you find out there. But the public transport was terrible, so you know, she phoned me up and she said, Sam, can we go for a day and get a car? And I said, that's great. We can go out there. I can take you there. And so she's got all of her stuff. And, and then um, I said, I can help you out with this. You know, we can go through and start like recording the species together. And we were allowed to do that. That was, that was fine. And there was this really big plant that I thought was really interesting. And I'm looking through like this book I have trying to identify it. and I was like oh seems to be some kind of member of the carrot family it doesn't look at all like a carrot but it's huge like it was this giant huge thing and I start looking at the picture and I'm starting to narrow it down and I'm kind of like stuck between like two or three different species and I'm reading it and it says you know leaves feel like this so I'm like touching the leaves my hands I'm like oh, I'm not sure uh, and then it's like smell uh, the plant you know it smells like this and I'm like sniffing I'm like oh I don't know maybe I've got a bit of hay fever so I'm like sticking my nose and I'm sniff 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 oh, and it's no. like yeah and then it's got something else so I'm like poking you away I was like oh, I'm not sure I'm not sure what it is and then right at the very bottom I see this tiny little skull and crossbone 
And they're big like danger, do not touch, highly poisonous, <laughs> can give uh, extreme sensitivity to the sun. And for about three years afterwards, every time the sun came out, the underside of my nose would completely blister up. Oh my god! Yeah. What was it? You know what? I still can't. I can't remember now. But I did find out what it was at the time. It was it was some kind of like giant hogweed or something like that. But it was a particular. It was a particular type. I don't know if you know giant hogweed. No. Okay. Oh my gosh, it's so funny. Yeah. We have hog plum here, but it does not do that, and it has edible berries. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I discovered. It was it was quite funny. So then. You know, I didn't know it was the next day that I realized that I had this problem now from this thing. But I went back home and then I was working for a a local government environment office and they were doing like an island-wide habitat survey uh, back in Jersey. So basically they wanted the whole of the island map for the the kind of plants, uh, trees, flowers, uh, anything basically that's plenty-like. They wanted to know what it was. And I remember going somewhere to go to like a tourist site and do my section and I had a friend of mine he was having a really down day and I was like hey, do you want to come with me I'm doing this thing to the castle you know you can just come in with me it'll be fine just stretch your legs a bit he's always enjoyed kind of the castles that are around so he came along and there was one there and he was like oh what's that and I was like don't touch it <laughs> it's a member of the carrot family and it's stuck to him to this day every time i see him and we walk anywhere and he'll point and he'll go that's a member of the carrot family <laughs> very unmistakable yeah yeah so i guess the life lesson there is don't touch plants they're dangerous <laughs> <laughs> if you're trying to id look with your eyes not your hands <laughs> yeah yeah or you know read the Read the whole description before you start. <laughs> it's got the crossbones right at the top. It would have made so much more sense. I feel like warnings like that should be at the top in red. Right, yeah. In my defense, it was a very small skull and crossbow right at the bottom. So. Oh my goodness, that's really funny. That's a good yeah. story. <laughs> so at the end of each episode, I'd like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth into the world and do what would you like the audience to take away from your episode so i did put some thought to this and it's a very simple ask and it's use less and demand less so what i mean by this is that it's going back to this idea that you know we're having a, a lot of problems in the world but there are certain things that are inherent as the, the cause of those problems the way that we operate as a society and when i say we i'm generally speaking to us in the Western world who tend to have various stages of disposable income and have the ability to acquire stuff and especially stuff that is disposable. And so when I say use less, I'm really asking people to use less stuff. So do we want to buy that thing that's covered in that wrapping or do we want to buy that thing that's that's loose, you know, if we have the option to do that? Do you really need to take your own car somewhere or can you car share or, you know, take public transport or walk or take a bike? You know, you, you we like to buy things that are disposable and cheap. Um, but, you know, is that really that really cost effective uh, I think by cost I mean you know the actual cost that we pay you pay up front and it may be cheap but then when it breaks you have to replace it so then we have to pay again and again and again and again but there's the environmental cost of that as well right so the producing the item and then you know what happens to the item afterwards depending on what it is you know probably can't be recycled and then 
thinking about buying local where possible. And that's in terms of like using less emissions to get whatever it is to you in as short a distance as possible. It's a complex ask in a way, particularly when people don't have a lot of money available. Um, I do appreciate that. And, but I think most of us can do something like we can really think about the things that we're acquiring and ask ourselves, is that something we really need? Or is that something that we are better investing in? Or, you know, it, maybe it's even something that we can hire from somewhere. You know, there are these places where you can like rent tools and stuff, for example, now. Things that you might only use once or twice, but, you know, maybe you can hire or borrow or, or whatever it's going to be. And then for demanding less, it's something I think we can all ask for. And that's really targeting things like our, our governments, whichever kind of administrative level it is, whether it's our local government or our regional or international governments, the companies that we use, our workplaces, the universities we go to, all these kind of options that are kind of that make our world work and asking them to find ways to use less. And on a, I think a grand scale, what I would like to see more is a push for this idea of circular economy. So this feeds into the using less. So when we create things, we're not just creating an item to be used. We're thinking about how that item is going to pass through the creation stage to being the use. And then what happens after it's used? You know, is it something that can be repurposed for something else? Or, you know, is it going to just end up straight in the bin and just become out of sight, out of mind? But actually, it's just becoming part of a mounting problem. Using less fossil fuels, obviously, is a big one there how we create clean transport and energy systems and all of these other things that we can do to help support society move towards, yeah, I guess a society that doesn't need to keep accumulating more to do more, but can find ways to use what they have or we have to achieve what we want to achieve. Love it. It's great asks. It's a big ask. <laughs> it, is, it is, but you know, you, you just start with one thing. And you stick with it and you make it a habit and then you move on. Yeah, that's it. It's an interesting thing. Um, you know, I see a lot of people talk about plastics these days. And there are a lot of people who will uh, quite rightly say, you know, plastic is really not the biggest problem that we have right now. What's going on with all this plastic? But it's a very interesting material because I think it really exemplifies many of the things that I've been talking about. Like if we can find a way not just to reduce our plastic use. But if we could find a way to harness plastic, because it's, in, it's an incredible material, I mean, we can't doubt it, you know, we can do so much with it. So if we can find ways of making that uh, less reliant on fossil fuel and something that we can recycle and reuse that's maybe more energy efficient, all these kind of things, you know, there's, there's some interesting stuff that we could do with that and use that as a way to kind of bring people together to push towards this more circular system that doesn't require endless growth and endless using of stuff. Right. Yep. Circular economies. Circular economies. There we are. <laughs> I have hope for it. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, if listeners want to find you, connect with you, where is the best place to do so? Well, yeah, you've got my website, which is oceanoculus.com, and there is a contact form on the bottom of there. You can also find me on Twitter, which is Ocean Oculus, and a Facebook page, which is also Ocean Oculus. Um, 
you can message me on there as well. Or there's LinkedIn, and uh, it's just uh, linkedin.com slash Sam Andrews. You'll be able to get in touch with me. Perfect. Thank you so much. Samantha, this was really wonderful chatting with you. Thank you again for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.